Saviour was sung by the Scottish Festival singers there. Coming up on Heart and Soul this morning, we complete our series on the history of the Methodists. Adrian Plass reads a chapter from his book, The Unlocking. Malcolm Guite has a meditation on Psalm 12. And we hear from Nadifa Muhammad, a Somali-born novelist and poet. We've got the notice board and music. And it's time for more music. From Handel's Messiah, here is the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields with the Hallelujah Chorus.
Now the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields conductor Neville Mariner with the Hallelujah Chorus. And we'll have more music by Handel later because David has chosen the arrival of the Queen of Sheba. And talking of David, here he is. We are continuing our series on John Wesley and Methodism. Melvin Bragg talked to three experts on the history of Methodism, Aaron White, Stephen Plant and William Gibson. Today they look at John Wesley's attitude to slavery and Methodism's worldwide influence. William, in what ways was... Can we divide Wesley up into part of him being an innovator and part of him an almost rigid traditionalist? Yes, well, in many respects, as we've seen, Wesley was a a strong traditionalist. Um, He described himself as a Tory high churchman. um, And as we've seen, he certainly believed that God had sanctioned the form of government in Britain and to rebel against it was sinful. Theologically, of course, he was also pretty traditional. Um, He believed in witchcraft. He certainly believed that demons and devils um, were active in the world. But in other respects, he was very progressive and innovative. He uh, was interested in science. He experimented with medicine and indeed with electricity. He had uh, electrical beds in London for healing. Um, And he even wrote a medical guide for his preachers to take round and sell. And he was also a very strong and early opponent of slavery. Um, In 1774, his tract, Thoughts on Slavery, uh, denounced the slave trade as the sum of all villainies. Stephen? If I I just add something briefly about slavery in the United States, it's true that Wesley's opposition to slavery uh, was well known, and this became a huge issue after the independence of the Methodist Church in America, uh, which... Uh, led to a number of secessions because uh, churches uh, which had initially welcomed people, whether they were black or white, on an equal basis, came in the 1790s to start segregating. And this led uh, to a couple of splits um, leading to major black Methodist churches, the first of them led by the remarkable Richard Allen, who'd been born a slave, bought himself out of slavery, uh, and was asked to sit in the gallery, a gallery he'd built himself by raising funds for it amongst black members of a church in Philadelphia. And he led the black churches out, became the first group of African-Americans to buy property anywhere in the United States uh, and, and established something called the American Methodist Episcopal Church, of which he was the first bishop. Methodism was developing all around the world, wasn't it? It was going in uh, countries way outside Britain. Absolutely. Um, the I mean, the birth of Methodism was lucky in in that it coincided, uh, I say lucky in one sense, it coincided with the birth of colonialism. So as British imperial interests expanded, uh, the missionaries just kept pace with it, um, sometimes by design and sometimes by accident. A key figure initially in this was John Wesley's colleague, Thomas Cook, who we've already mentioned in connection with America. He set up a kind of a Methodist missionary society uh, and wanted to uh, take missionaries to India, but was encouraged by Wesley instead to send them uh, to Scotland, believe it or not, but also to Nova Scotia. They were blown off course to Antigua and set up Methodist churches among the slaves in Antigua. That spread throughout the West Indies. And then subsequently there were Methodists among the groups that settled in Sierra Leone. And basically the whole thing exploded, but often in an uneasy relationship, partly critical and partly in collaboration with the whole colonial project. 
Thank you. Erin, um, what do you think um, Wesley's longer legacy has been? Well, as Stephen, in a way, has been explaining, of course, we have that global spread of Methodism. Um, but perhaps, you know, in addition, there is the legacy of that period of the evangelical revolution, uh, evangelical revival, where we have this sort of brand of religion which was organised and disciplined, but also had this spark of emotion attached to it as well. And a broader sort of legacy in terms of some of the political influences that would come in increasingly by the 19th century in certain campaigns, such as the anti-slavery campaign. And in addition to that, of course, there was a certain um, emphasis on communal hymn singing, which began in this period. And as we're coming up towards Christmas, Hark the Herald Angel Sing by Charles Wesley is going to be sung countless times. So some of the legacy is sort of leaven in the mix that we don't always notice and and realise is there. More of that discussion in a few minutes. But here, meantime, a hymn by Charles Wesley, who's arguably the greatest Methodist hymn writer. It's Muddy Pryor with... I know that my Redeemer lives and ever prays for me. Charles Wesley's I Know That My Redeemer Lives. 
But now we'll go back to hear more about the history of the Methodists. This is the final part of our series on John Wesley and Methodism. Melvin Bragg talked to three experts on the history of Methodism. And finally, they look at the influence of Methodism on trade unions. Before we finish, can I ask one of you to take on a big subject that we can't miss, is that the influence that the that preaching in Methodist churches had on people uh, was a big factor in creating the energy in the trade union movement. Methodism was very powerful in the early trade union movement, um, and indeed uh, the Toll Puddle Martyrs were Methodists. Um, and there certainly seems to be a connection with the Arminian sense of egalitarianism that motivated Methodists particularly towards radical politics. Uh, E.P. Thompson certainly sees Methodism as one of the motors of radical political engagement. Stephen? Yes, and if I just want to add to that, really, that one of the impacts, one of the legacies, uh, to, to amplify what Erin was just saying, uh, was Wesley's and the later Wesleyan's uh, impulse towards social activity and political engagement. So um, uh, the largest UK charity provider for the elderly, uh, Methodist charity, the second largest children's charity in the UK, a Methodist foundation, uh, trade union movements, as we've heard, but all kinds of things, youth clubs that led to Everton Football Club or Aston Villa Football Club, and endless kind of <laughs> amounts of youth work and education and Sunday schools, which had a huge impact on English society in particular, less so, uh, less so in, in Scotland. Erin, um, is Methodism in in Wales, where it was very powerful, is it declining? Has it still got power and authority? It's declining, as all the nonconformist denominations in Wales are. I mean, it went through its period of, of um, substantial influence by the mid-19th century and through to the mid-20th century. And, of course, you know, the growth of Methodism in Wales was remarkable, and particularly Calvinistic Methodism, because by 1851, the religious census, it was the largest group of worshippers and had outstripped Anglicanism, which is why, of course, in Wales, there were the campaigns for disestablishment and there is no state church in Wales as a result. But from really um, uh, mid-20th century onwards, there has been a, a steep and, and dramatic decline in the fortunes of all the nonconformist denominations in Wales. Mervyn Bragg, Evan White, Stephen Plant and William Gibson there. And that completes our series on John Wesley and the Methodists. A Celtic sound now with Steph McLeod and the Celtic Worship Band. It's Matt Redman's 10,000 Reasons or Bless the Lord, O My Soul. Can I have you all stand one more time?
It's a new day, darling. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name.
Yeah. 
an updating of the old song Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, the Sovereign Grace Worship there. Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. A Motley Crew A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Wasn't it nice of Jesus to give his doubting disciple a second chance, despite the fact that Thomas had shut his own inner doors of trust? And I really do believe that the same principle holds good today, although I don't think we are practised enough in allowing it to affect our lives. Consider this for a moment. Earlier in John's Gospel, we hear Jesus telling his sorrowful friends that it will be better for them if he goes, because then the Holy Spirit can come. Better? Is he joking? What on earth is he talking about? What could possibly be better than having Jesus himself in the flesh to lead and advise and correct and know exactly what to do? Well, however silly it sounds, that's what the Master said, and that is therefore the fact. But how, when we are at the very bottom of the valley, do we constructively grasp the truth of this amazing claim that the Holy Spirit is as much of a living presence with us as Jesus was with the disciples? I'm no expert in these matters, but I do have a suggestion for my brothers and sisters in would-be discipleship. I know how we sometimes crouch fearfully behind locked doors, convinced that if we open up again, we'll get something wrong again, and therefore there's no point. But let's not assume that we'll only find God in the unsafe outside. May I gently suggest that it is in the centre of that very locked place inside us that the Spirit of Jesus might suddenly come as he came to Thomas and the other disciples 2,000 years ago and say, Peace be with you. Jesus is very kind. Let's make a pause and listen for him. Pray with me. Father, we come to sit at your feet now, a straggling, motley crew of men, women and children who can't help seeing ourselves as very poor disciples, not just in the eyes of the world, but in your eyes as well. Why are you smiling, Father? We can't do it, you see. We can't be the shining band of light-filled spirits that we wanted to be for you. Little things, some of us have managed, small achievements, half achievements, bit of an attempt or nothing at all. Why are you smiling at us like that? Thing is, we wondered if there was something we could do as a group, rather than on our own. We're a bit nervous on our own. If we put everything we've got together, there might be something there worth having, mightn't there? We couldn't do worse than we've done so far. Why are you holding out your arms to us, Father? We're truly sorry to have been so useless. We've all agreed that we're not really Christian material at all. Why are you smiling and weeping at the same time, Father? Now, back to music, and it's Elvis this time with Lead Me, Guide Me Along Life's Way.
am tired and I need my strength and power. with the Imperials Quartet and a song which dates from the 1950s Lead Me, Guide Me, Along Life's Way Here now is David to introduce Malcolm Geitz's meditation for us this morning Malcolm Geitz has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms Today we hear Malcolm's thoughts on Psalm 12 It's followed by the arrival of the Queen of Sheba by Handel played by the Gabrielli Players under their conductor Paul McCreish. Salvum me fac, a response to Psalm 12. To topple tyrants and exalt the low, up, Lord, and help us. Hear our hapless sighs. We have been cowed by people in the know. The worldly wind us in a web of lies. We have been flattered into servitude, snared with devices that the rich devise. They purchase us with their fake plenitude. They keep us clicking on false images. The 1% control the multitude with virtual distractions, online purchases, whose icons all prove idols in the end. They market us as passive packages. Send us instead your pure words, Jesus. Send us hope, still silver bright, tried in the fire. Come down to free us. Come as our true friend.
Gout was followed by the Gabrielli players and the arrival of the Queen of Sheba by Handel. It comes from his oratorio, Solomon. Nadifa Mohammed is a poet and novelist. Nadifa left Somaliland when civil war broke out and was only four when she came to Britain in 1985. She talks to Michael Barclay about her dramatic family history. From the publication of her first novel while she was still in her 20s, Nadifa Mohammed has been a writer to watch. Her fine second novel, The Orchard of Lost Souls, won her the Somerset Morn Award and gave her a place on the prestigious Granta List of Best Young Novelists. She's about to publish her third novel, The Fortune Men, and is also turning it into an opera with music by Nina Whiteman, a commission from the Royal Opera House. What's striking in all her work is the epic sweep of the storytelling, exploring themes of exile and survival. Her characters are caught up by war and by love. Nadifa herself left Somaliland in northern Somalia when civil war broke out. She was only four when she came to Britain in 1986. I know, Nadifa, that you've been drawn a lot to your own family history, and particularly the extraordinary adventures of your father. Uh, There's a musical connection here because he started out as a travelling troubadour. (laughs) He did, he did. So when he lived in Eritrea, after he deserted the Italian army during the Second World War, he tried out many different professions, careers, and after he was wiped out by locusts, two years running, he decided to quit being a farmer, and instead he grew his hair long and picked up a rhabarba, which is a four or five stringed instrument, a bit like a harp, and he would travel from village to village, playing at weddings and being a layabout, as his mother saw it. (laughs) Did he still play at home when you were growing up in London? And indeed, what kind of music was around you when you were growing up? So he didn't play, and I think he must have given it up quite quickly as he joined the Merchant Navy in 1947. And at home, I wouldn't say he was very musical. He liked country and western music, and I've got lots of his tapes, um, country music, western tapes, and he liked Michael Jackson, some blues. So his tastes were quite varied, but I think he was attracted to music that had a kind of melancholy to it, which I've inherited, and also songs that told stories, which I'm also attracted to. Well, you brought us a wonderfully varied list uh, from Pergolesi and Vaughan Williams to Max Richter. Uh, but we're going to start with the Somali musician Hudedi. Sadly, he died of COVID this last April. He was 91, but I know he was very important in your life. He really was, especially after I lost my father a few years ago. And he said to me, I'm, I'm now your father. And it became like that. And we travelled to Somaliland together. He lived nearby um, the studio, actually, in West London. So I went past where he lived. And it's so awful. This whole year has been so difficult. And Mm. someone... I just think that... Yeah, I've lost a massive support in my life. But also, he was a public figure. And he gave you an oud, didn't he? He did, he did. He did. He gave me a small practice one and then he gave me one because he felt I had progressed enough to <laughs> to need a real oud. I would play music to him from all sorts of places and he would try and play along on the oud. Tell us about this song that you've chosen. Uh, I think it was one of his favourites. So this song is dedicated to his brother and Urhoyo 
the translation in English would be mother's womb. So it's a love song to his brother and the fact that they shared their mother's womb. And it's had many different covers by modern day Somali musicians. I think there's also an Ethiopian version of it as well. And it's unusual. I don't, I can't think of a British song, American song that's dedicated to brotherly love. But, um, this one is very touching. Somali musician and oud player Hudaydi, and we heard the singer Armanta. Have you been able to take up your oud and play since Hudaydi died, Nadifa? Do you know, this week is the first time I've thought it's time. Just yesterday I agreed with a friend of mine, Lana, who plays the viola, that we would do Zoom jam sessions every Friday. So the first one will be this Friday, and I want to get back to it. And Armanta is a good friend as well, so he plays the oud and I can jam with him. That's interesting what you were saying just now because we do tend to process music on a different side mm. of the brain from the mm. side we process words. Yes, yes, and that physical connection that you have when you're playing. And I, I'm not very confident because I didn't learn much music growing up. So Hodeli taught in this very direct way. It was Nothing was written down. He would perform and then he'd say, copy me. And then he would, you know, threaten to chop my fingers off <laughs> if I played badly. Um, so and it's a very direct and instinctive way of learning. And when it's going well, my mind and my body are completely connected and I don't have to think. And I think I'm someone who thinks a lot and probably too much. So it's really nice not to have to think. And that was Nadifa Muhammad. And that's our programme. Thanks for being with us. Our thanks too to Nadifa there, Michael Barkley... Malcolm Geit, Adrian Plass and Mervyn Bragg and friends for their contributions this morning. We'll leave you with a song from Africa as the African Children's Choir sing Teach Me to Dance.
Let's <laughs> go.